0: friends this is nick you're listening to the inspired human podcast okay people we're going to pick up right where we left off with dr brock talking about ritual why rituals because you can't just think your way into healing you've got to experience it here's why rituals meaningful i think for For really any sort of chaplain or minister or religious leader, it's because you don't really need to be you don't need all the training in psychology for that stuff. you just need to go to your roots as a religious leader so for me, yeah. you know I'm an Anglican priest yeah i you know so what do i i the sacraments are my kind of go to cards and, and yeah. I'll tell you uh in in deployments so on deployments you know which are usually nine months or less those those sacraments become one way
1: yeah I, I don't centering know if we, people yeah i don't know if i told the story about herm kaiser and communion in the book
0: please do i, I don't know if you did it's either great, but i know it's a it's great story
1: he, he he's new he's a new chaplain he didn't want to be a military chaplain when he went to seminary because he objected to the Vietnam war. And one of his seminary professors said, well, don't you think that guys that object that are in the military are going to need a chaplain too. Mm-hmm. And so he got persuaded to become a military chaplain, of course spent 40 years in the military, but he, um, he his newest, his, his first is, you know, like he, he went to cha- chaplain school and then, the, and then he went to Vietnam. So he's kind of young. He, he, he did six years as a grunt. So he's, he's like, experienced in the military, at least he had that. Um, and, and he was older than a traditional seminary graduate. And that helped him too. But he went to, he went to Vietnam. And um, so about two weeks after he'd been there, his unit was lining up trucks going off to stage somewhere, to some place. And uh, so they all knew they were headed into a battle, firefight of some kind. And uh, so he thought maybe he would offer people communion if they wanted it. So he had his little communion kit. And he goes to the back of the first truck that's full of guys in the back of the truck. And he says, anybody here want communion? Had, or he said something like, have you had communion lately? And, they, and I said, we've never had communion. And he said, well, would you like it? Oh, yeah, yeah. So the entire truck in the back, he has no idea what the religion was of any of them. But they all yeah. wanted communion. So he did communion and, uh, and then they were so excited that they were radioed down the line of trucks. He had to do communion at every truck. Yes. <clears throat> and he said that's, he got known as the, in Vietnam as the communion chaplain for that How his great. reputation. Yep. So he, and everybody would ask him for communion when he would show up. Um, and, and, he said there were people who were Jewish and not religious at all and whatever it's it, they didn't care. That was what was so interesting is that the ritual had meaning for people, no matter what their tradition they brought to it. And I think it's because it was a moment to be a human being instead of a soldier.
0: Hmm. Reminded then, God is present with you, even in the far country. In
1: the fire. Yeah. No matter what you're going it, communion says that, right? No matter what you're going through, God is there. And, um, so, so yeah, it's, and it to say that to somebody doesn't mean anything at all, but you enact this ritual and somehow it becomes real. Yes. Right. It's, it, it, and, and it's tied to a long story and it has, it's so this loaded with meaning, even if you're not religious and you, you know, so, so there's, um, and he, he did, he did another one that, uh, he had a unit that was cutting off ears. Which is like totally against military code of conduct. Yeah, right, yeah. And they kept trying to stop people from doing that. And and, the, and he went to the commander when he noticed it was happening. And the commander said, I've told them not to do it. I've commanded them not to do it. And I can't get them to stop. Right? Because mm-hmm. he told them not to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, Herm said, would you let me gather them and say something to them? And the commander said, sure, you can try. So he brought the he brought the unit together. And he says, I know that... you you want souvenirs and he said and I understand that so if you see a military insignia on somebody you can cut that off or if you know dog tags whatever he said or um a weapon or you know those are things that are part of war fighting he said but if it's something personal if it's like a wallet or a picture or a piece like a, a piece of religious something he said give those to me, collect, you you can collect them, give them to me. So pretty soon he had a duffel bag full of this stuff. Hmm. And so he called the unit back together when he had a full duffel bag and he said, and he, and he said, we're gonna, he said, I I, thank you for giving me these personal effects. And i you, I know that if you had died in war, your family would want to know what happened to you. So we're going to send this duffel bag to the Red Cross in Saigon and hope they can find the families of the fallen. And he said, and so, so I want you to help me bless this duffel bag so it will get to Saigon. They stopped cutting off ears.
0: Yeah. He humanized the enemy.
1: He, yeah. And he humanized them. What they yeah. were doing was so dehumanizing to themselves. Yes. He understood that as a chaplain, he understood that. And, and he figured out a ritual. Let's just pray over the duffel bag. It's a pretty simple thing, but it wasn't just, we're going to send it. Goodbye. It was like, now we're going to do something sacred with it Mm -hmm. first. Right. And, um, and that gave it a a whole different, I think, valence in terms of meaning Um, that they, that, that they could also, pray in a way that might've been a little remorse for some of the other things they'd done. It was a sort of, you know, it wasn't just a simple act of blessing a double bag. I think it was pretty complicated, but sure, yeah. And I, you know, I don't think they taught him in seminary to do that thing. He just kind (laughs) of had an instinct for, uh, because he'd been a grunt maybe, and he kind of knew how soldiers thought.
0: So I keep thinking, what's the goal of this stuff? And, you know, at least in some of my own anecdotal work, it's been this notion of, of reconciliation. You know, so we go through catharsis. We go, you feel better now that you're confessing these things to safe people and you're chatting yeah. about it, yeah. you know, in a group, but where do we go from here? And, 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 and for me, it's been this sense of reconciliation to yourself, to others and to God.
1: Yep. Uh, yep. And, um, and, and that takes looping back into the trauma and thinking about it differently. You, you can't walk away. It, it, the reconciliation has to carry the memory with
0: it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um,
1: because otherwise the memory sits there as this thing that haunts you. It, that's it, why it,
0: I've, yeah. And that's why I've kind of, I've departed away from the language of cleansing. Cleansing makes it sound like you're clean from the thing. It's gone, but it's not gone.
1: Mm-mm. It's there. No, it becomes your friend instead of your enemy.
0: hmm A place of wisdom.
1: Yeah. That's what it means. We have a, an exercise. It's a, it's a Japanese Buddhist psychotherapeutic practice that we've imported in our program uh, that I learned from a friend of mine at Emory who works with um, uh, mindfulness and with the Tibetan Buddhism. And uh, he, he's not a Buddhist himself, but he, he works with Buddhist practices because he thinks they're helpful. And his wife is this expert on this psychotherapeutic practice. And he had her come in, he was teaching mindfulness in a prison and, and, that's when he learned trauma-informed mindfulness because there were prisoners who couldn't close their eyes. They didn't feel safe and all, oh, all this yeah. stuff. So, so he learned a lot. And he had a woman in the, in the group who was, who was um, in for murder from killing her own mother. Um, and he, he said, I was so naive. I went in to teach mindfulness. And he said, and I started, and people were running out of the room because they couldn't close their eyes. And he said, "I." so then he said, he went and read their case histories and he realized half the group had murdered somebody. And, you know, and one of them was this woman who murdered her own mother. And she Mm -hmm. was really having trouble with the mindfulness. And so his wife came in to help him with this psychotherapeutic practice, particularly with this one woman. And what, what they ask you to do in this practice, if you go to a temple, is that you go for like a week, like on a retreat. And you spend all day, 12 to 15 hours, writing all day long. On a series of three questions, it's the same three questions, and you pick someone um, who's a very significant relationship in your life, usually your mother. They recommend your mother. Mm. So this was ideal for this one woman. And um, and you write for about 10 hours or like a whole day on the first five years of your life, the next five years of your life. And you do it in five year segments until you write the same answer, the same questions over and over and over again for your whole lifespan. And the three, it's the same three questions. The first question is what did you receive from this person? Second question is what did you give to this person? And the third question is what problems did you cause this person? And that third question for, for a long time puzzled me, but I I think I figured out why it's an important question, but, Hmm. um, but this woman wouldn't do it. She wasn't willing to do it. So they finally persuaded her after a month or so to do it because she was really struggling. And, um, and, but because she's in prison, she couldn't write for 10 hours a day. So she, she agreed to write for a half an hour a day for 200 days to make up the time. Yeah. And she wound up instead writing an hour a day on those questions about her mother for her entire lifespan. Um, and uh, at the end of the process, she said the most valuable thing in the way you have to write like that is it bring, she said, I got my memory back. All I could remember was that her mother had pimped her out to her drug dealer from the time she was six. Until she went to college to pay for drugs mm. um, and, uh, and and then she, she left and then her young very much younger brother called her when she was in class one day because he was scared, and she drove back and he ran out of the house in bloody pajamas and she knew exactly what had happened to him and so she went in through the garage door and saw the mother and the drug dealer in the in the living room negotiating and her mother carried it she knew had a gun in her bedroom drawer and she went and got this loaded gun and she said she shot both of them rambo style and the drug dealer survived but her mother died so that that's the context in which she's writing this exercise about what problems she calls her mother
0: deep suffering deep trauma
1: deep trauma and she said so the the process brought gave back her memory because all she could remember was the harm the trauma but she remembered that her mother did love her. She remembered that her mother had taken her to the zoo and tried to do good things for her, but was struggling as a single mother without much support in, in poverty and that the drugs were one way she coped. Hmm. Um, and, and, she, and so she realized that she had been loved and that mattered to her. Um, and she said what she found was that um, she, she developed compassion for her mother. Uh, and everything she had to struggle with. And that the compassion in no way erased all the harm she had done. But that there had been this other thing, this love for her. And and because she was able to feel compassion for her mother, she was also able to feel compassion toward herself.
0: Yeah, so she humanized her mother and she humanized, humanized herself.
1: herself. She's no longer a monster who murdered her mother. She was a child who had been loved. Yeah. And um, and so the, the the and of course the teacher the person that's doing the uh, the question thing checks in every few hours with people to make sure they're doing all right. What are they learning and all to keep them writing. And so he did that with her every week. He, he checked in with her, and he said at the end of her journaling, she had she wrote, "The cup of poison, that I of of anger and hate. The cup of poison that I've been drinking from." most of my life is empty and I no longer need it anymore. Mm -hmm. And then the last line in her journal was, and I believe that gratitude is the moral memory of mankind. Wow. So, so we use those questions in our program as well um, to to help people get in touch with childhood trauma. because a lot of people have it. Uh, They go into the military often to escape difficult families.
0: One of my favorite parts of your book yeah. was actually towards the end, when you talk a bit about your life as a kid, specifically those last eight years uh of your of your dad's life, where he had yeah. come back from Vietnam after his second tour. Could you, yeah. you know, for folks who haven't read that book, could you kind of uh explore that part for them?
1: Yeah. Well, I think the story begins with my father enlisting at 19 and training for nine months with the First Infantry and having his first military assignment be Normandy. I didn't know that until I got a a senator helped me get his military record. I had no idea. I knew he'd been in World War Two and there was some something about him being a POW and getting it electroshock and being discharged and then re-enlisting after he recovered
0: sure but, that's you know, not in the book yeah
1: yeah that's he's just a sort of a you know so so i so i knew that he had he'd been in world war ii but he never talked about it just never never went there and i i think the electroshock may have erased some of his memories. so hmm. so he didn't have much to say but uh but he but when i saw his i saw normandy on his papers i thought oh my god um that was the first place he landed um, and uh, so, but he but he made a career in the military. And I have a sense that when he met my mother in Japan, and uh, and our my Puerto Rican father had had deserted us after you know when when I was six months old, um, that I was his redemptive project. That he had to fight to get me into the country because the INS, the Naturalization Service, wouldn't let me come to the United States because he wasn't my legal father. And so my mother was faced with either leaving her husband or leaving me in Japan without her. I mean, it was a really difficult situation for my mother. So mm-hmm. my father worked for a year with, the, with a lawyer, probably a JAG Corps lawyer, to get me into the United States through a Senate exemption. So the most virulent segregationist in the U.S. Senate at the time, John Stennis, is the person who got me as a mixed race <laughs> child into the United States. That's already pretty funny but i think my my father had to swear an affidavit he had to take care of me financially adopt me raise me as a christian and a patriotic american all these things so wow i was kind of a project um that was probably some related to his negative experiences in the war i don't know that for a fact but he was really a good father to me i mean mm-hmm. we had our issues but i i he was rock solid reliable and that mattered that matters to a child right yes. so so uh, and then I was 16. He went to Vietnam and he came home so cold and a- angry after a second tour in Vietnam as a medic that I um, didn't want to live with him anymore. I just didn't want to be around him. And by then I was in college. So mostly I just avoided going home and then he died of a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And I was in Switzerland. I had gone very far away. I was living in Switzerland at the time he died. So I had to suddenly uproot my life in Switzerland and come home. Um, but I... I was angry with him for what he did to me, to our family it, um, in those, those first few years after, after Vietnam. Um, he and my mother, uh, it, my mother had cancer. So I think uh, that was another project that helped him recover from, from Vietnam, was helping my mother get through all that cancer. Um, and, but my, my siblings were home when he was so awful. And so th- there were lots of consequences for, from his moral injury from Vietnam which I didn't understand at the time.
0: Yeah, I so, bet it was well into your adult years that you started to really think about that.
1: Yeah, well, I didn't think about it. I just stayed angry at him. I mean, I was just, you know, I what do you do? It's, he, was, he was horrible. Um, and then when I discovered moral injury 10 years ago, that's when I thought, wait. So what happened? I mean, it's like suddenly I realized that this change in behavior probably had a cause. It was like, something that happened to him in Vietnam. And I learned from a cousin later, as I was working on this book on moral injury and she was asking me what I was working on and I told her what moral injury was. She says, oh, I think that's what your daddy had. And I said, uh, why do you think that? And she said, well, you know, there was that, <clears throat> that spy or informant or somebody that he worked with in Vietnam. And I remembered he him talking about in these tapes he would send to us, this 16-year-old, I was 16, and this 16-year-old Vietnamese teenager that was his translator for the medical pacification program the Army had where you would go into, the, the medics would go into villages and pass out penicillin and aspirin and take care of minor injuries and things. Um, and she was his translator. And he loved doing that work. He loved going out into the villages of Vietnam. That was, you know, it's a, he had this Japanese family in Japan and I think Asian families, he loved being with them. And so that was one thing he really loved doing. Um And she said, well, you know, he found her body. And I said, what do you mean? I, she died. Cause that I did not know. He, she said, yeah, you know, like um her body, she'd been like raped and, and her body was all mangled. And it was Americans that did it. Hmm. And I, and I just sort of like froze and said, Oh my God, Oh my God. No wonder he was trying to control me when he got home because he uh, couldn't control her life. Right. Yeah, it just yeah. There was so much that tumbled down from just knowing that mm-hmm. about how much he admired her and cared about her. And then, and, and, and All we knew was he never he wanted to to leave the military immediately. He didn't want to spend another day. And if he'd stayed two more years, he would have been at 30 for those retirement benefits. And my mother was really angry with him for getting out ahead. And that was, I remember them arguing about that. And he was just adamant, this man's army is not the army I signed up for. I'm not staying. That's that's all he would say. Hmm. So so that's a clue as to how he was feeling about having invested 28 years of his life in the U S military and, and then having that be the last experience. He had. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it, uh, I, I have a very different relationship to the memory of my father than I had 10 years ago. Um, I, I, it's, it's like the woman who murdered her mother. I can now remember all the good things he did for me and, um, miss him what and a wish gift. Yeah, and wish he was here to talk to.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I've written him some letters, though. I, you you never know if they're listening or not, but yeah. Uh, uh, but it's helped me to write those letters, um, partly for um, helping me actually understand my own behaviors after uh, I went to college um, and uh, and and had such a sense of broken trust with my father.
0: I think this conversation will be helpful for people who think. Uh, folks who suffer from war have only one option, and that's, oh, you must have PTSD or PTSD. But instead, yeah. I think what we've done is we've brought to light what I would call a universal human condition that most people probably have on varying degrees, some sort of moral injury.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Certainly, it's relevant for our our current soldiers and veterans, but also their families who experience them as they come home and then redeploy, come home and then redeploy. So thank you so much for taking time out of your really busy schedule to chat with us.
1: I'm delighted to do it and hope it helps. Um, yeah. I, I just think chaplains are those pe- the people in those intermediary spaces that can hold both the military honor and discipline um, that is the best part of the military that people learn and the horrible and devastating things that we ask of people who serve in the military that chaplains sort of sit in that intermediary space where uh, people have to come to terms with the breaks and the, and the terrible things that happen. Um, and yet um, y- you want to honor what's good um, and find a way through all of that, that brings you to a, a wiser and better place than um, the place that you were that got so broken. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's a, t- a tough long process it's not done overnight um but uh, but chaplains have that capacity to help people c- carry it i think
0: let's hope so <laughs> that's, yeah. that's what we're in the business <laughs> well, the, for I, I think the grace. good ones
1: do it the good yes, ones do it i, I loved certainly. working with herm kaiser i just so much appreciated the heart of a chaplain that he carried to every person he ever met it was just herm nobody ever called him chaplain kaiser or colonel kaiser everybody called him herm and he was When I first met him, I I was expecting, you know, know, Colonel Herman Kaiser Jr. is going to speak at the Truth Commission on Conscience and War for Us. He's the host of the commission. And so somehow I expected someone very formal. And I went to give him his script. And he he opens his hotel room door. And he's, you know, he looks like Santa Claus a little bit. (laughs) And he says, hi, I'm Herm. (laughs) Uh, I I thought, oh, well, okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's the end of our chat with Dr. Brock. But first, let me just say, if you're looking to come home to the Father, reach inward to yourself or reconnect with those around you. Come by my office. Let's pray together. Or let's grab some coffee. Or let's do a workout together. Just don't embark on that journey alone. Blessings, my friends. Love you guys.